Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're jumping right back into the Household of God series, and as you will see, uh, we are diving into the deep end uh, today. Uh, We're dealing with a difficult text. Uh, This is a difficult text. Challenges so many of the cultural assumptions that are ingrained in us. Uh, It's a difficult text relationally, because actually the handling, the interpretation of this text has divided denominations, it's divided churches, it's even divided families. It's difficult, and there's no getting around that. And yet, before we go any further, I do want to reassure you this morning that it is good. It is good. God's word never returns void. It's going to work in our midst. And so I'm looking to it with expectation this morning. And I wanted to say really quick a word to Eddie, because I am seeing a red light that says my battery is low. Are we going to, I should have checked that sooner. Are we going to make it through this sermon? He's confident. So am I. I just, I envision we'll get to this really weighty moment, and then it will be silent. But that, that's not going to happen. Eddie, Eddie vouches. He says this is true. So, by way of reminder, 1 Timothy represents something of a blueprint for how to structure a healthy church. Uh, this church in Ephesus, I told you, it reminds me a lot of, of this church here at Redeemer. It wasn't a, a brand new church, and yet it was still in its fledgling stages, but it was a church that had been built on a solid foundation. The Apostle Paul had stayed there for a long time. The church had been well-equipped, well-taught, and yet they were facing a wave of adversity. Uh, they were facing a wave of confusion. And Paul sent his young protege, Timothy, to instruct this church, to equip them, to lay a foundation. So this is something of a, a blueprint for the foundation of a healthy church. And this passage, so hearing that, this passage is written into the blueprint. We should hear that before we go any further. Now, some of us might not have put this instruction into the blueprint, but the Apostle Paul did, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is significant. We should approach this text, therefore, not with a posture of suspicion or even embarrassment, but with a posture of expectation. That's what we'll do. We're going to jump right in because we have a lot to unpack this morning. So would you look with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 11 to 15. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a difficult text. And uh, before we go any further, I wouldn't normally do this, but I want to share a bit of my complicated journey with these five verses. Um, As a Christian, I've I've had a lot of engagement with this particular passage, and I can share, there was in stage one of my Christian life, I just ignored this passage altogether. It was really easy to read through my Bible and just skip through it, and I did. Uh, And then I came to stage two of my life as a Christian, and I hated these five verses. Um, I wouldn't have said that at the time. At the time, I would have said that I hated the way that they were interpreted by some. I hated the way that they were applied by some. But those of you who know me know that I come from a, a family with a long line of female gospel ministers, female pastors and preachers and teachers. 
And so many of my best friends, even, were preachers and pastors and teachers, females. And these verses seemed to me to be an assault on who they were as women. And it seemed to be something that was used by others to delegitimize the work that they were doing for the gospel. And, and I hated it. Then I came to a season where I would say, I, I studied and I looked, expecting to find one thing, and I found myself holding different convictions, and I begrudgingly tolerated the teaching that we find in this passage. And I would often say things, and I probably said these things to many of you because I had begun at this church when I was in that process. I would say things like, I believe this is true, but I don't like it. I would say things like, I believe that this is God's plan for us, but I wouldn't do it this way. And I thought that that was appropriate and right, and looking back now, I'm embarrassed because who am I or who are any of us to put ourselves as, as judge over God's word? to put ourselves in a position to apologize for something. I, I repent of that attitude, and I can tell you this morning that I love, I love this passage. I love it because I love my Heavenly Father, and I know that He loves me, and He loves all my brothers and sisters in this church. He loves the two daughters that I'm raising. He loves the female gospel ministers that, I, that are in my family line. He loves us, and He knows what's best for us, and I trust Him. Therefore, I love this text. And before we go any further, I, I want to invite you, and us as a people, to adopt a posture of humility. And, and that's going to manifest itself in two ways. And so this is my desire for us. First of all, I would love for us to resolve to have humility towards others today. Uh, I mentioned there are godly men and women who disagree with our interpretation of this text. And so I, while I would say I believe that this text is clear, I believe that uh, our conviction, our holding of this text is the right conviction, and therefore I'm going to teach it. But I, I do want you to hear that there are godly men and women who, who are doing gospel ministry, who I would happily sit in the trenches next to when push came to shove in gospel ministry, who don't hold to these convictions. I'm disappointed in myself and my handling of this text. If any of you walked out of the room today questioning the salvation of some of our brothers and sisters with different convictions, I believe it's clear. I believe it matters but I do believe that we see through a glass dimly and we should be humble. So humility towards one another first. But then second and far more significant, I want us to adopt a posture of humility before God and his word. Because this is his word. In Isaiah 66 two, God says, this is the one to whom I will look, he or she, who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Some of us will find this passage offensive. Some of us already have. Some will feel uncomfortable as convictions are challenged. But let's resolve this morning to let the Word of God speak. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we've been told, we want to ask, what does God's Word say? So with an attitude of humility, with a posture of humility, this morning we're going to ask and answer three questions. First, what does this passage say? Second, what does this passage mean today? And third, what are the implications for us as a church? So first, let's ask the question, what does this passage say? So again, wave reminder, the Apostle Paul is writing here to his protege, Timothy, who's in the city of Ephesus, working with this church. And this passage in particular comes at the end of some instructions that the Apostle Paul is giving to the men and women in, in terms of their conduct in the gathering, the church gathering. Okay, and, I, and that is an important detail. So, for example, in a, the last sermon we preached in this series before we took a break for Advent, you remember he gave instructions for the men and instructions for the women. 
And so he said to the men, in verse 9 of chapter 2, he said, men, I want you to come together and I want you to stop fighting and instead to lift up holy hands in prayer. So men, stop fighting, start praying. And then he turned his attention to the women in Ephesus. And he said to them, I want you, as you come to the worship gathering, to stop treating it like a beauty pageant, trying to one-up one another with these displays of, of beauty. And instead, I want you to emphasize an inner beauty. I want you to, to display good works in your lives. So that's the context. Right now, you, in verse 11, we are really looking at the second half of Paul's instructions for the women in the corporate worship gathering. And, and that's important because these instructions are for just that, this corporate worship gathering. These aren't instructions about how women should conduct themselves in the home. There are passages for that, but this isn't one of them. And these aren't instructions for how women should conduct themselves in the workplace. These are about the corporate worship gathering. And with that being said, the first thing we need to see here, the first thing this passage says, is that women should learn quietly with all submissiveness in the church. We see that in verse 11. I'm just... Oh, yes. I was like, did I read this text? I, yes, I did read this text. I remember reading this text. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to be one of those days. My awkwardness is higher than normal. Women should learn quietly with all submissiveness in the church. We see that in verse 11. Now, interestingly enough, that would have been particularly offensive for the church who was receiving this instruction, but it would have been offensive for the opposite reason for why. Ephesus was a Greco-Roman city, and in that culture, women were not highly esteemed. Uh, some did, but by and large, people held to a view that women were not worthy of, of learning. And so this command that a woman should learn would have struck right against their cultural intuitions. There would have been people saying, no, 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 women is reserved for men, not for the women. And yet, by God's grace, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he confronted their assumptions and he offended them because they had adopted some attitudes that were not correct. And I want, I want you to pause there because that's significant. God is allowed to offend us, and in fact, it's good when he does. If the Bible never challenges your thinking, and I want you to think about, you know, your time, year after year, sitting down reading his word. If you can sit down and read your Bible year after year after year, and never find your convictions challenged, and your life turned upside down, then I would ask you to consider whether you are, in fact, reading it honestly. Are we the first culture to have gotten it exactly right? to have adopted all of the correct assumptions? Are you the first person whose every preference and conviction perfectly aligns with God's will? No. Well, then listen. God's word offends every man, every woman from every culture. It does. It unsettles us. It confronts us with a dilemma. Will I take him at his word or will I bend his word to my personal convictions and preferences? So it offended the Ephesian culture. We're glad that it did. Great, women should learn. But now let's jump back into the text and let's consider the, the posture of their learning. He says they should learn with quiet, quietly with all submissiveness. So let's unpack those terms. First of all, the women should learn quietly. While it is possible that that word is referring to absolute silence, I would argue that that, that can't be what it means because, first of all, the context he, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he gave the women specific instructions on how they were to pray and prophesy in the worship gathering. Now, it seems odd that he would give them those instructions if, in fact, women are to be silent in a worship gathering. 
it's hard to prophesy silently. So that, that's probably not what he means. But then if you look at this chapter itself, the Apostle Paul uses the same word for quietness right at the very beginning of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. So if you look down at your Bible, look at verses 1 to 2 of the chapter. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Is he calling on the church to live silently in the world? Is that what he's saying? I I want you to live in the world without making a peep. No, that's not what he's saying in verses 1 to 2. So so I don't believe that's what he's saying here either. It appears he's referring to, not to silence, but to a quiet, peaceable position. But what does it mean then that women should learn with all submissiveness? Does that mean that they should blindly follow the teaching of the church elders? Is this a command that, that women should come to church and they should listen without discernment? Is that what he's saying? I think that one commentator helpfully phrases this. He says, the injunction is not directed toward a surrender of mind and conscience or the abandonment of the duty of private judgment. The phrase, with all subjection, is a warning against the usurpation of authority. And I think that is a helpful and a biblically founded qualifier. So, for example, the Apostle Paul commended uh, the church in Berea, if you remember that story. The church in Berea, he commended this church, which was made up of men and women, because when he came to them and he opened God's word and he taught them, they didn't simply take his word for it. They also opened the Bible and they discerned. So the Apostle Paul is pro-discernment. In the same way, we read the story in Acts 18 about Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, taking Apollos aside after a time of corporate teaching to correct him. So they were listening with discernment. And in Acts 18, verse 26, it says, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So when we put the evidence together, hear this, Paul is not calling on the women to blindly obey whatever they're told from the pulpit. So hear that, tuck that away, highlight that. What's he calling for then? He is, however, calling them to adopt a posture that welcomes and affirms the male leadership of the church elders. So what does that look like? Well, we could flesh that out in this context, but instead let's just root ourselves in this church in Ephesus. That looks for them like bringing their concerns to the elders rather than gossiping around the town about disagreements. A live problem in Ephesus that he addresses in chapter 5. That looks like trusting the elders when they warn you not to listen to false teachers. False teachers in Ephesus like Hymenaeus and Alexander. That looks like asking questions after the gathering, like we see modeled by Priscilla and Aquila, rather than standing up and shouting a challenge, like what seems to have happened in Corinth. There was a, it was a disorderly church. So that's, that's in practice what it would have looked like then, and, and I'm sure you can think of examples of what it would look like now. But that leads to the second thing that this passage says, which is that women should not teach or exercise authority over men in the church. We find this in verses 12 to 14. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, these verses have been dissected and analyzed and debated exhaustively. 
and exhaustingly, truthfully, over the last 60 years. Um, without, uh, within evangelicalism, perhaps it would just be helpful, if you're not already aware, there are two uh, theological camps in terms of our understanding of women's uh, role in the church. There's the egalitarian position, uh, and this was the position that I, that I held to previously. The egalitarian position holds that men and women are equal in worth and dignity. By the way, they both hold to that, but holds that women are, men and women are equal in worth and dignity, and that therefore, because they're equal, there should be no differentiation or distinction in their roles. If there's equality in worth, there should be equality in all of the roles that they perform. Now, second, there's the complementarian position, which agrees that men and women are equal in worth and dignity, but which holds that men and women are called to different yet complementary roles in the home and in the church. This complementary roles piece is why they're referred to as complementarians, and uh, this is our theological conviction here at this church. In my first draft of this sermon, I had uh, an entire page and a half devoted to Greek word studies uh, in this passage. And uh, about, you know, what does the word authentane mean and how does Uda connect these two infinitives? And it was very fascinating for me and probably would have been for one of you, perhaps. Um, But the rest of you maybe would have tapped out. That being said, those things matter. And so if you're here and you're like, man, I would like to know. I would love to talk to you about that. So you can email me or we can talk offline. I I would love that. But for the rest of us, I'm going to move past some of the Greek word studies. And uh, with a reference from Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is a highly respected, he's a a good scholar. Uh, He holds to the egalitarian position, right? So this isn't our position as a church. Here is a good scholar who holds to that view, and he says, it is hard to deny that this text prohibits women teaching men in the Ephesian church. Now he's going to go on to explain why this shouldn't be understood to apply to us today, and we'll deal with that later. But I want you to hear that. Here's a good egalitarian scholar saying that it's hard to deny that that's what this is saying, at least for the women in Ephesus, that they should not teach or exercise authority over men in the church. But now let's let's look at the text. And I want you to notice that Paul does not root this command in situational circumstances. Meaning he doesn't justify this command by pointing to the, the temperament of the women in Ephesus. Like, maybe they were combative. Maybe there was a hyper-feminist thing going on. He doesn't point to that, if there was. He doesn't point to their lack of education. He doesn't point to some of the cultural norms of the city. He could have done any of those things, if he so desired. But instead, he roots this command all the way back in the creation of the world. Look again at verses 12 to 14. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, so he's given, he's given his reason for this argument. For, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul tells Timothy the church should function this way, not because of the challenges that are unique to Ephesus, but because God built this into his design. And in fact, he points all the way back before the fall. He points to the creation itself. And he says, we learned something there about God's plan for us as men and women. J.I. Packer notes, the man-woman relationship is in... This is part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. So J.I. Packer's saying, it's not as if Jesus is going to come and then flip, you know, what the Apostle Paul has said here, because 
the Apostle Paul is pointing back to even before sin came into the picture. And he's saying, this is how God has structured the world. Adam was the first steward of God's word. You ever thought of that? Adam was given these instructions from the Lord. It was his responsibility to pass those on. Now he failed. And he was held responsible. Have you ever noticed that in your reading of Genesis 3? He was held responsible. Even though it was Eve that reached out and took the fruit, and she took the first bite, then she gave it to Adam. When God came and someone had to give an account, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This was Adam's responsibility. It was the man's assignment. Now the serpent went around the man, and he approached Eve. He deceived her. He flipped the script on God's directions. Adam was to instruct Eve, but instead Eve instructed Adam, and the rest is history. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing us to here. Now some, jumping out of that, have insinuated that this must mean that women are more easily deceived. To which I would say that that is an unfounded argument. Like, we don't need to make that jump from the text, because Paul's not pointing to the fact that women are more easily deceived. He's just pointing us back to what happened. He said, here's how God made us. Here was the original design. Here's what the devil did to go around God's design. Here were the consequences. Let's not make the same mistake. That's what he seems to be saying. Now, again, I want to remind you that these are instructions for the gathering. These are instructions for the gathering. Can a woman teach in the home? Yes. Can she exercise authority over men in the workplace? If a woman owns a diner, can she hire a male server, waiter? Yes. This passage is referring to the gathered assembly of the people of God. Teaching and exercising authority is the particular responsibility of the elders. And in chapter 3, he's going to introduce the office of elders and overseers, and he's going to explain what it looks like. And this is a responsibility, according to Paul, a responsibility for men in the church. He says that here in, in 1 Timothy, and he says that in his instructions to Titus, who's living in a different city. He's in Crete. It's set apart for qualified men. Finally, our passage teaches us that women will be saved by trusting in the plan that God has for their lives as women. Now, where am I getting that? Look with me at verse 15. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So as you can see, thankfully, this verse gets easier and easier the further we get into the passage. Um, What does this mean? Well, let's talk about what it can't mean. That's a good place to start. It can't mean that women are saved from their sin through childbearing, because Paul consistently teaches elsewhere, for by grace you've been saved through faith. So Paul's theology hasn't changed. That option's off the table. It can't mean they're saved from sin. It can't mean that they're saved from death. Some people believe that he's saying here that if you're a Christian woman, you will never dial in childbearing. That can't be true. That's observably untrue. Sadly and tragically, many Christian women have died in childbirth. So then what is he saying? There are two plausible answers, and I would argue that they both fall under the same category, that women will be saved from deception. So here's the first of two plausible answers. Some argue that Paul is alluding back to the promise of Genesis 3.15, where God declared to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that is a plausible answer, especially since the Apostle Paul has just been pointing back to Genesis, and he's been pointing back to Adam and Eve and this scene in the garden. 
So it is plausible that he would then be making an argument from that passage. And if that is the option that's correct, then this promise that pointed forward to Jesus, the child who would be bruised, who would be weakened for us, but who would ultimately crush the serpent's head, that, then what the purpose... <laughs> boy, that's clumsy wording, isn't it? If that is what he's saying in this argument, then here's his point. Lest we fall into the temptation of devaluing the contribution of women to the church, Paul's reminding us that it was a woman who made the greatest contribution of all. It was through a woman doing what only a woman could do, giving birth to a child, that salvation came into the world, that the serpent's head was crushed. So that's, that's the first option. He's, he's valuing the role of women by pointing back to Mary and the birth of Jesus. The second plausible interpretation is not entirely different. And it argues that Paul is here calling upon women to embrace their distinctiveness. So while there is a role that's exclusively reserved for men, and, and maybe that feels offensive, Paul's saying, well, there's also a role that's exclusively reserved for women, and it ought to be embraced, honored, and celebrated. Now, if this reading is correct, and I would argue that it's the best interpretation option we have available to us, then Paul is saying that women will be saved from deception by embracing who God has made them to be. And he uses the example of childbearing because that is a role that is unique and specific to women, a role that is actively and aggressively devalued by the enemy. So then putting it together, by embracing their distinctiveness as women, women will be saved, not from sin, not from death, but from deception. Because there is an enemy who from the very beginning has been actively working to deceive women into thinking that they only have worth and value when they act and live like men. And that's the lie. And I would argue it's the biggest lie in our modern Western culture. Faith is always exercised in the context of a particular challenge. And often for women, the challenge has to do with childbearing. Sometimes the challenge is believing in God when you can't have children. But for many women, particularly today, the challenge is believing that having and raising children is a worthy occupation and calling. God says it is. The devil says it isn't. And faith, as always, will be about deciding who to believe. I would suggest that that is what the Apostle Paul is putting forward in this passage. That's what it says. But what does this mean today? That's the second question we're going to ask today. And that is the question that divides the egalitarians and the complementarians, these Christians who, who have a dis different understanding of this passage. Um, I want to answer this quickly and succinctly, but I, I want to try and answer this fairly. What does this passage mean for us today? Exactly what it meant when it was written. So that is our conviction as complementarians. But I do, briefly here, I want to explain to you perhaps why our egalitarian brothers and sisters would argue otherwise. And so I'm going to put forward some of the arguments that you might hear as you engage with them. And partly I'm doing this because if I was sitting in this congregation 12 years ago, these are all the objections that would be rolling around in my mind. Okay, so here are three of the objections that have been put forward that would suggest why this passage doesn't carry forward to our context today. First, it's argued that Ephesus was a unique context, which of course it was. Every context is unique. But it's argued that the challenges that were being faced in Ephesus were were unique from all of the other challenges that were being faced in the first century. And the Apostle Paul needed to squash something, a particular problem there. And the problem, it is argued, is that in Ephesus, the women had adopted a, a brazen feminism that was, that was uh, over and above something that would be culturally acceptable. But they were domineering and usurping. And it's pointed, the, 
it's pointed to the fact that there was a temple in Ephesus to Artemis, uh, which is a female goddess, and that this was something that helped to brazen and embolden uh, these women. It was a bastion and bulwark of women's rights. That's the argument. The challenge is that when you look into the history, and I had to look into the history myself, not as thoroughly as some, I'm not a historian, granted, but I, I've read some good resources. And one historian notes this, for example. The majority of these deities, which is in Ephesus, even the goddesses, were served by male priests at Ephesus. So he says, when we look at Ephesus in the first century, there were lots of gods and goddesses, but the gods and the goddesses, they were all served by male priests. He goes on to say, this is a bit unusual, since a priestess very commonly officiated for goddesses and a priest for gods in Greek cults. Certainly, a bastion and bulwark of women's rights, if that's what Ephesus was, would have had as many priestesses in evidence as in its other contemporary cities, not fewer as we find at Ephesus. I don't know if that's going over your head or not, but he's saying when we look into the history in Ephesus, it's odd. Even in the places where they were worshiping goddesses, it was always male priests that were leading in the worship. And you wouldn't expect that if it was a highly feminized city, as it is argued. Now, not only that, but when Paul was instituting elders in Crete, which is an entirely different city, if this was unique to Ephesus, you'd think that in Crete he wouldn't have any qualifications to, to say that these elders should be male, and yet he does. So in Crete over here and in Ephesus over here, he institutes male elders. So that's our response to the first objection. The second one, the second objection that would be made is that the problem that was being faced was that the, the women were uneducated. And that's why this shouldn't be seen to apply to us today. Because when we go back to first century Ephesus, the women were not educated in the same way that the men were. By the way, that's true. So that's true. That's a, a valid place to begin your argument. The premise then is that the women, now that they're learning, now that he's commanded that they should learn, eventually, naturally, once they've learned enough, then they can graduate to become teachers and they can graduate to have authority in the church. But while that's plausible, it is significant that Paul doesn't state that they should learn until they are able to teach. He could have said that, but he doesn't. His restrictions don't include any such qualifications. And it's worth noting that there were uneducated men in Ephesus too. So it's odd that if it was just about education, it's odd that he would limit that to the uneducated women when in fact there were uneducated men. And on top of that, there were some educated women. So for example, we find Priscilla and Aquila in, in Acts. Like there were educated women in the first century world. And so to have a blanket restriction that would keep educated women out of office as well seems odd, plausible, but odd. Finally, and this is, what I, this is the best argument, I would argue, from, from an egalitarian position. They would point to other New Testament texts, and the argument is that 1 Timothy is an outlier. So the restriction we find here doesn't really mix and fit in with all the rest of the New Testament instructions, and so therefore we should, we should judge it accordingly. So I quoted Gordon Fee earlier. He's a good egalitarian scholar, uh, solid, and I, I read you the first part of his quote. In fairness, I want to read the second half now. So he said, it is hard to deny that this text prohibits women teaching men in the Ephesian church. But he goes on to say, but it is a unique text in the New Testament. And as we have seen, its reason for being is not to correct the rest of the New Testament, but to correct a very ad hoc problem in Ephesus. And we've mentioned some of those problems. He would argue this was about the, the women who were unlearned. This was about the, 
the hyper-feminized society and some of the challenges they faced there. And he would say, but when we look at the rest of the New Testament, this doesn't add up. And I would argue that that is not true. Um, I mean, I think he's not trying to lie here, but I would argue when we look at the evidence, so I mentioned in Titus, when he, in Titus, when he's instituting elders in Crete, he institutes male eldership, an entirely different city. In Corinth, he gives instructions to the women that they should be silent in the church, which is the same instruction he gives here. Now, it was a different challenge there. It's, they were jumping up, and it was disorderly, and it was chaos, but even still, gives a very similar instruction to the church in Corinth. Uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, this same church, but earlier, he wrote to the wives that they should submit to their husbands. This does seem to be the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Now, in fairness, I want to quote some of the passages that our egalitarian brothers and sisters might point to in uh, in argument. So I'll, I'll just two. There's more. And if you're listening at home, there's more, I understand. I want to put forward two and try and deal with them fairly. So an egalitarian might point to Romans 16, 7, which says this. Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So the argument goes that this person, Junia, uh, was themselves an apostle. And so if Junia, this woman, was an apostle, then she would have exercised the role of teaching and exercising authority. Therefore, Paul's command here in 1 Timothy can't apply to all the churches. That's the argument. So here are some of the challenges with that argument. First of all, there's a lot of discussion about whether Junia was a, a male name or a female name. And there's a lot of debate. So it, it could be a male name, it could be a female name. For the sake of argument, let's assume that it is a female name, and that Junia was a woman. In the Greek, it says that she was well-known, the Greek word is en, among the apostles. She was well-known among the apostles. Could that mean that she was an apostle? Yeah, maybe. Could it just as likely mean that she was well-known among the apostles, like the apostles knew Junia? Also possible. I would take from that, it's just a tricky verse to build a theology on. When we're trying to construct our theology, we want to use clear texts, and then the unclear texts, we want to kind of put them in place. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is, is pretty clear, and I would argue that this text with Junia is, is not as clear, to, to be fair. It's not as clear. It's tough to build a theology from that text, but this wouldn't be the only text pointed to. I'll point to one more before we move on. Galatians 3.28 would often be cited in this discussion as a bit of a defeater verse. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so then the argument goes that here in Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul has knocked down all distinctives. And so for us to try and take these, these instructions to the church in Ephesus and apply them to the global church is, is unhelpful because the Apostle Paul here is saying that all those distinctives are in Christ. But is that what he's saying in Galatians 3.28? I would argue, no, certainly not. I think there are really clear reasons as to why. First of all, 1 Timothy was written after Galatians. So it's odd that the same man who wrote to eradicate distinctions in Galatia would then go on to enforce them in Ephesus. But more obviously, Galatians 3 is about what? It's about salvation has nothing to do with roles in the church. That's not the problem that he's writing to address. That's not what he's giving instructions on. He's writing about salvation. He's writing about the gospel. 
Paul's explaining that there is not one way of salvation for Jews and another for Greeks. Neither is there one way of salvation for slaves and another for free. Neither is there one way of salvation for males and another for females. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean our diversity disappears. In fact, by the way, isn't that one of the problems that we have in the North American church? That at times we thought that to be in Christ meant that our diversity needed to disappear. And we suppressed cultures and tried to put everybody into a, a one-size-fits-all. No, that, that was antithetical to the gospel. Our diversity doesn't disappear. But what, what this means is that we are united under the blood. Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, all of us, we approach God through Christ. That's what the text in Galatians 3 is saying. And so for all these reasons, and I, and I know that there are more, and, and some people who are listening might want more, and we can talk offline. But for all these reasons, I believe this text means for us what it meant for them. As we noted earlier, Paul rooted this command in the creation account. Why is that? I believe it's because this particular strategy of the enemy, this lie that women only have worth and value when they act and live like men, is not unique to Ephesus. The devil's like a bad cover band. He plays the same songs over and over again. So what does it mean today? Exactly what it meant when it was written. We're facing the same problem, and God's word continues to be the solution. Now that leads to one final question as we conclude. What are the implications for us as a church? And I'm going to move quickly here. I want to put forward two implications for us as a church. First, let us resolve to take God at his word, no matter the cost. And P.S., I know that I've worded that in a way that sounds a little bit dramatic. But in light of what we read earlier with this statement on Bill C-4, I do want us to make this resolve. This doctrine is a costly doctrine for some. Can we just put that on the table? I know that there are some women who would sit under this teaching and sit under this doctrine and say, if I affirm that, it will cost me. It will cost me some of my passions. It will cost me what I believe to be was my purpose in life. For, for people like myself, it was costly relationally. Um, it really was. It, it continues to be costly relationally. And yet we resolve to take God at his word, no matter the cost. There is a day coming when we will preach on what's next in the Bible. And there might be a great cost involved if we choose to preach it faithfully and to follow it faithfully. What we see in this text is that the office of elder and overseer, the office entrusted with the task of teaching and exercising authority in the church gathering, is an office that's reserved for men. Why? We don't know. Because it's, that's the way that God created it in his order. That's why. Not because men are smarter. He doesn't say anything about that. He just says because this is God's plan for us. So, we will operate accordingly even when our unbelieving neighbors think that we're insane. And by the way, if they're listening right now, they do. And even if our Christian neighbors think that we're archaic and barbaric and uneducated in our handling of the text, we don't hold this conviction to be quirky. We don't hold this conviction to try and make a big stance. This conviction is a fruit that grows from our core conviction, our root conviction that God's word is right, even when our cultural convictions scream otherwise. When I came to see this in the text, I remember one of my best friends, and praise God, he is still one of my best friends, but I remember him looking me in the eyes with great concern and frustration, and I remember he said to me, Levi, with all of the need in our world today, are you really telling me that God would disqualify half of his people for the work of ministry? And at the time, I didn't have a good answer for him. Um, but I do now, 
if I could have that conversation today, I would say, first of all, this text isn't calling us to cut our ministry team in half. That's untrue, and it's an unhelpful way of framing this discussion. This passage is setting a restriction on one office, the office of elder and overseer. But ministry is not reserved for elders and overseers. Ministry is not reserved for the pulpit. Ministry happens in the home and in the workplace and in the nursery and in the neighborhood. And to claim otherwise in order to win an argument is to delegitimize amazing gospel work that's being accomplished all around us. We're a kingdom of priests, all of us. We're called to go into the world and to make disciples, all of us. And so, no, God is not cutting our ministry team in half. And second, hasn't it always been the case that God has called us to obey him in plans that seem counterintuitive? You know, I think of the story of Gideon, when Gideon's about to face a a, a big army, an army that's much bigger than his own army, but he's assembled a, a mighty force, and then God tells him, hey, Gideon, cut it in half. And then he says, cut it in half. And then he says, you know what, take these 300 men and march with them. And wow, that must have looked ridiculous. You know, how many people were whispering in Gideon's ear, are you insane? Like, why would you, why would you do this, Gideon? Don't you want to win the battle? Don't you want God to be glorified in this victory? And Gideon, Gideon wanted those things. But God had called him to take 300. Gideon believed God, Gideon obeyed God's instructions, and Gideon watched God work a great victory. Because we believe that there is blessing in obedience. We do. And this is what we see in the text. We won't risk losing that blessing by following our own intuitions or the latest advice from cultural pundits. We won't sacrifice that blessing for comfort, applause, or acceptance. And, And now I'm not just talking about this particular doctrine. Now I'm pulling back to things we've discussed even at length in the service already. We believe there's blessing in obedience. We believe that God's way is right, so we will walk in it. God's instructions are good, so we will delight in them. And God's word, all of it, leads to life. So we will preach it, and we will obey it, every word of it, no matter the cost. That's our conviction moving forward as a congregation. And this text presents us with something of a a test of faith. Now, second and finally, Let us resolve to celebrate the diversity of our roles. This discussion, so difficult for so many. He writes, Much of the discussion lies on implicit assumption that a limited role necessitates a diminished personal worth. Nowhere in scripture are role and worth ever equated. Now this was my objection. If there are roles and functions that are off-limit for women, women like my loved ones, women like people in my family, then how can we ever say that women are equal in the family of God? We can't. It doesn't make sense. That was my argument. It's an honest question. It deserves a robust answer. It deserves an answer from God's word. And so if you still have your Bible open, please, would you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. I'm going to read all the way from verse 12 to verse 26. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, then that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So hear me this morning. You are not less than because you serve a different role in the body. Your worth is not tied to what you do. The world thinks that way. The devil wants you to think that way. But that kind of thinking is unbiblical and it will crush your spirit. Some of us in this room are called to teach in the church. Others are called to teach in the home. Others have been called to carry a life in their body and to give birth to an image bearer of God. Others will use their hands and their strength to meet the tangible physical needs in the church and in the community. Others will be called to mentor younger men, younger women, to be aunts and uncles and dads and moms in the faith. Others will be called to use their empathy, their gift of encouragement, to lift up those who are slipping through the cracks. Others will evangelize in the apartment building. And we must actively fight against the lie from the devil that our worth is tied to our role. It is not. It is not. And according to the Apostle Paul, it is the roles that seem to be the least spectacular in the world's eyes that will receive the greatest honor in the final reckoning. And it's not for nothing that he leans in in verse 15 and highlights the role of motherhood. You know, isn't it interesting that we spend a lot of time talking about how women aren't able to serve as elder and overseer and how wrong it is. And we don't talk about how a man doesn't know what it is to carry a life in his body and to deliver an image bearer of God into the world. That is a role that is distinct for women. And we have been devaluing it from the very beginning. I want to speak today in particular to some of you moms who wrestle with the lie from the evil one when you're up at 3 a.m. at night and you're exhausted and you're spent and you feel like you're wasting your life. You feel like your role has no value. Some of you moms who are at home right now trying to figure out how to homeschool and feeling like you're failing miserably and feeling like other people in the world are accomplishing great things, but here you are trying to figure out a Skype call and you're believing the lie and you're hearing it whispered in your ear that what you're doing doesn't matter. And I just want you to hear from God's word that it does matter. It is so significant. I can't do it. I am disqualified from it. But you can. And God has called you to that office. He's called me to this one. 
He's called Amanda to that one, Gary to that one. He's called us to our particular roles, and all of them matter. All of them matter. We're the body of Christ. We all have a role. We all have a function. And God will place us exactly where we ought to be. Which means we don't need to look at each other with envy. We don't need to claw our way into positions of prestige. We simply need to trust and obey. And as we walk in obedience, we will experience his blessing. You can count on it. As we embrace who God has made us to be, we will be saved from the deception of the evil one. And to that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would speak in a way that only you can. Um, Lord, we, we mentioned at the offset, at the outset, that we want to be humble. Lord, I want to be humble. I know that I'm capable of, of being prideful and arrogant, and it's very possible that even in my presentation of the text today, I've come across as arrogant or prideful. Um, and maybe that's true. Maybe that's bubbled up in my heart. So, Lord, I just repent before you now, and I, I pray, God, that that we would be a people characterized by humility. Lord, I pray, if there are people who are wrestling with this, people who are just struggling to believe that this could possibly good, that be good, that this could possibly be your plan, Lord, if that's the case, I just pray that you would minister to them in a way that only you can, that you would press your truth deep into their heart. Um, Lord, and we want to acknowledge the fact that there's an enemy whispering lies at the same time. There's an enemy who is trying to turn our hearts against each other at the same time. So it's a spiritual fight. So God, I just pray for spiritual help as we wrestle through this and as we seek to obey you and we seek to understand, we need spiritual reinforcement. So God, would you help? Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humble towards those who disagree with us. As we go from this place, as we minister in this city, uh, Lord, there are going to be hard days ahead, undoubtedly. And uh, we will need to be a people who are able to stand together with brothers and sisters in Christ, who don't hold to every minute detail that we hold to. Lord, we want to be able to do that well and winsomely, yet without sacrificing our conviction that your word is right and leads to life. So help us to find that balance, Lord. Forgive us for all the times when we we miss the balance and we distort it. Um, Lord, we pray for wisdom. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to rest in the glory of this passage, that we wouldn't go home feeling as if we've done the hard work of of dealing with something offensive, but that we would go home feeling refreshed because your word is right and leads to life. I pray against, I pray against that lie that often is whispered in the ears of mothers in particular. Lord, I don't know why it is. I don't know why it is that the enemy has been so effective in devaluing that one in particular role. Um, But Lord, we acknowledge that he is, his lie is prevalent and uh, he's got a lot of, a lot of women feeling discouraged. And so, Lord, we pray for them. I pray that they would feel their value. I pray that they'd feel encouraged by you. And I pray that we would be a church that celebrates every role, that we wouldn't fall into the trap of, um, of creating celebrities, of highlighting the people who have uh, positions of, of prestige, people who preach from the pulpit. Lord, I pray that the church would never make much of me, but, Lord, that we would always make much of you. And, Lord, we would make much of, of those who serve you in every capacity. So, Lord, to that end, I want to thank you today for all of those volunteers who are teaching our kids right now in the nursery and uh, who are equipping them and training them for a life of righteousness. And, Lord, the, the fruit of their labor, we, we won't necessarily see it in this life, um, but, Lord, they're doing something invaluable right now, and I pray that you would encourage and bless them. 
So Lord, we ask for all of these things in Jesus' name. We ask for your help, and we pray that you would direct our hearts now to worship you and to respond to you with gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?